Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Fitness Unfiltered. If you're an avid listener, you already know who we are. If not, I'm Dan Osman and I'm joined by Emma Story Gordon and Dr. Mike Banner, but also our very special guest this week, who's given up her valuable time, Jenny Roseborough, who amongst many of the things that she does is also Head of Nutrition at Jamie Oliver, Snow Biggie. Uh, before we delve first into, deeper into what Jenny does, Mike and Emma, how are you guys? I'm well. I'm fine, but I went viral on Twitter yesterday, and it's taken up an awful lot of my time. It's hard being a big deal. It's really difficult, and people are very mean. <laughs> the world of Twitter. Yeah. Jenny, how are you? I'm good. I want to get on Twitter and see this viral chat. It was quite funny, I thought, actually. It was a bit funny. It was about a new NHS app that the Home Secretary, or Secretary of State for Health, sorry, is has recommended where there's a there'll be an app where you can tell all of the different A&E waiting times so that you can go to the quietest one. And I just made a, a slightly sarky comment about how you can be well enough to drive around the country looking for the quietest A&E, but also si- simultaneously sick enough to need to go to A&E. And then I've just been inundated with, like, I would say 80% of people just agreeing with me and going, yeah, and making funny jokes about it. of people agreeing with me with such vicious vehemence, like, yeah, I agree, all Tories should be executed and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, that's not really what I said. And then 10% of people disagreeing with me in also a really vehement way. Like, I can't believe you're so ridiculous that you think that that wouldn't be a good idea. And I'm like, just chill out, people. We don't understand sarcasm on Twitter. Just because you didn't put hashtag tongue in cheek. Hashtag lols. Um, So thanks for your time. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for your time, Jenny. So Jenny's on to talk about public health, government policy and the obesity epidemic today. So rather than we miss a few details out, Jenny, I wonder whether you could begin just by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and the work you've done. Yeah, so I guess I'm a registered nutritionist and I've worked a lot in working with obesity. So I actually started my career um, at a program called MEND, which stood for Mind, Exercise, Nutrition, Do It. And that was a child weight management and healthy lifestyle program, um, but more of an intervention. So it was like a 10-week program. And basically, I worked in the head office where we wrote um, manuals, created resources with clinical psychologists and physical activity specialists and then dietitians and registered nutritionists and then trained people all across the UK and then across North America. We had programs in Australia um, in Amsterdam, that was an interesting one because really wow. I have no idea how they translated it. Uh, <laughs> couldn't read it, but I just trusted them. Um, yeah, basically to deliver this program in the local areas. So that was very much about nutrition education, physical activity, and behaviour change. Um, and it was the largest evaluated child weight management program really that's out there. Um, so that that was a big, huge learning for me. I think that if you're going to work in nutrition, to actually work you know in groups like that with people actually communicating Mm. nutrition messages is is really really invaluable um but then after that i was campaign manager at a group called action on sugar and they have a sister charity called action on salt um where they used to be consensus action on salt and health and they had been really successful for years in reducing getting manufacturers to reduce the amount of salt in their in their foods um and they set up a similar group called Action on Sugar to do something similar. Um, so this that moving point was really for me, okay, so MEND is great for people that we can get through the door, but a lot of people we can't get through the door because 
they're not health engaged, they're not aware of their child's weight status in the first place, um, you know, they don't have the time, the resources to get there, a million different things. So what can we do to still help the health of those people that aren't health engaged and therefore probably need the support more? And that is more about changing the food environment. So this stuff was all policy changes and the sugar tax is one example out of many, um, which I'm sure we'll go into, so I won't go into it now. But And then, yes, yeah, so I did that for a couple of years. And then more recently, well, I started at Jamie Oliver's in the head of nutrition role about, well, just over a year ago now. And this job is really, really broad because obviously we do retail stuff, um, restaurants, campaigns, um, books, TV, lots of different areas. Um, so as a nutritionist, it's great. I get to do all sorts. But I suppose my passion is still in the campaign side of things. And that was my experience, which is why I, I joined the team in the first place. So, yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. Just a few things. Ed. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, uh, we're all fans of your work anyway. And certainly when we do often touch on it in the podcast, when it comes to government policy and certain initiatives, especially when trying to articulate to the most socially deprived area as well, I, I imagine it's a real struggle. But especially with, and I'm glad you did reference the sugar tax, is perhaps what I understood about the sugar tax initially and how it's government driven, but how potentially some companies pass that cost on to the consumer as well. Those are the finer details that I didn't quite understand at the time. And I think a lot of people are kind of still under that impression. So if you could just talk us through the sugar tax and if there has been any contribution or notable increases in health since. Yeah. Um, so the sugar tax is an interesting one because in other countries it is a kind of a tax on the consumer, but in the UK it's a tax on the manufacturer. So essentially the way I see it is it's a mandatory reformulation program. So reformulation where you change the composition of a food. So generally that's what we've seen happen really successfully with salt, where salt's been reduced. Um, and the focus here was reducing sugar in drinks. And that's because we know that we're having two to three times more sugar than is recommended as a population. Um, particularly in children and teenagers, the highest intakes in teenagers, and the biggest contributing source of sugar are sugary drinks. So there was a rationale um, for focusing on drinks in the first instance. So basically, if it's a tiered levy, so if the manufacturer has more than 5% sugar in their drink, then they have to pay a charge. And it's tiered in that, which again is the first of its kind. So if they have more than 8%, then they have to pay an even bigger charge. And obviously that is to incentivize the ones that weren't going to get under 5%, but could still make some progress because otherwise they might not bother. So the tax is on the manufacturer and then that money can be put into more positive things like school sports and breakfast clubs. But the only thing um, I would say is that some, when the manufacturers choose not to reformulate and then their products become more expensive um, because they have to somehow pay for that tax. So in that case, they're creating a price differential where they don't have to, but what they are doing and what they really, really should do is make the sugary version more expensive. Um, and, you know, you do get criticism, like that's regressive. Um, some criticism is regressive, it's targeting the poor, but, you know, there are certain population groups that are already being hit the hardest, and that's mm. in health terms. And where we do see that price makes a difference, if it can incentivize people to, to you know make a different choice then then that's better a lower sugar choice and that does work in other countries and um, like we've seen in Mexico but yeah I think ideally we want that we want companies to reformulate and gradually reduce the sugar um, because you know it's, it's not taking away sugar completely out of drinks but at the moment we were seeing 
10, 11 teaspoons in a single can. Um, a maximum daily amount for adults is, is seven teaspoons, let alone mm. children. So, so yeah, that's how it's designed. Mm. In terms of impact, I think it's too soon really to see the impact on health. I mean, it's been in place officially for a year. It was announced um, a couple of years before then. So companies had two years to reformulate. And by the time it was launched, 50%, over 50% of manufacturers had reduced sugar in their products to avoid the tax. So that was huge. Um, and we have seen in the National Diet and Nutrition Survey more recently that sugar reduction, probably with free sugars, um, has reduced probably because of reductions in sugary drinks as well. Um, it's not just a reformulation. It's some of the hype created around it as well. So media messages and then people learning from that. Um, yeah, so we, so we have started to see a reduction in sugar. I think to see the health impact will be later. Um, and to be honest, you know, it, we know that it's not going to reduce child obesity. Um, definitely not by itself. Um, I, de I, I, I really feel like it will have an impact on maybe tooth decay. Um, so that'll be interesting to look mm. out for. But yeah, so it's, it's quite new still, really. And is that, um, sorry to butt in, is that just like, coke as in sugary canned drinks so it's not like orange juice or other drinks good question so what was exempted was after much debate really were um milk based drinks so if you had like a milkshake um even though they can be high in added sugars and fruit juices and smoothies even though they're high in the free sugars the type you want to reduce and that's because they do add some nutritional value and so you didn't want unintended consequences but that's being monitored because the unintended consequence could be that, you know, they end up being health haloed in a way. And then people yeah. go, go more for them and have more than we're having in the first place. But they're captured in another part of um, Public Health England's reformulation programme. So now they've got one in, in terms of food. So reducing sugar in food, 20% reduction by 2020, had five years to do it. All manufacturers and retailers and out of home restaurants. Um so within that, but this is voluntary, it's not mandatory, it hasn't got the tax element. So give you an example, sugar in drinks reduced by 11%. And so part of that is to do with the fact that it's easier to take sugar out of drinks because it doesn't contribute to the weight, whereas it does in food and it has to be replaced by something, which might be more calorific. Um, but part of it is also because, you know, there's a financial incentive. So yeah, so the milk and the fruit juice, they have got sugar reduction targets, very hard to reduce sugar in fruit juice unless you start picking your oranges from other places or it's the combination ones really um mm. where you can just choose less sweet ones but they, they have got targets but it's slightly different and i remember you talking about when when I, so just mm. for anyone listening jenny did an awesome talk at an event that, that that we helped to arrange um nutrition by the experts um and it was the first time i really understood the sugar tax and i kind of remember you talking about the difference between the voluntary reductions and the mandatory stuff and how actually did you say some companies actually prefer the mandatory situation mm. because then it doesn't create competition between them between the flavors of, of the different companies so they're not they're less likely to lose profit if yeah. they have a less sweet alternative than than somebody else does because then people will just want to buy the sweeter version because they'll naturally gravitate towards it yeah because why would the like why would you do the right thing if you were going to lose out from it essentially mm. Um, 
So like the British Retail Consortium, so in charge of all like the the retailers, even Sainsbury specifically came out and made quite public statements that actually they mm. wanted mandatory, they wanted that level playing field, they all wanted to move together. Um, and the only way with, with salt, you know, you can change taste preferences. And we know that our taste preferences change with salt reduction and they have done over the years as our diets become less salty and no one's really noticed or kicked back on that. So it doesn't work if some are doing it and not others. We don't have the same mm. evidence at the moment about changing preference, um, taste preference with sugar. Um, I think anecdotally we do, if you've ever stopped taking sugar in your tea. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I think we, we do want to also reduce sweetness across across the food population as well. So one thing I've noticed that, and maybe it's in relation to this, that seems to be becoming more popular is, like, more and more varieties of sugar-free alternative yeah. drinks. And like, what do you think of those? Because I know that some people would say that sweetness or eating, drinking that much sweetness is probably not a good thing either. And Yeah, that's definitely a good question and, and one that was certainly taken into consideration. And I think, I mean, our when we were advising on it, our advice was always to reduce overall sweetness. So it wasn't about just replacing like for like with, with sweetener. We wanted taste preferences to change. And yeah, that needed to be done gradually, but that would be the overall intention and overall aim. Um, but, you know, as far as sweeteners are concerned, they, under EU regulation, are deemed safe. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't be able to use them if they were dangerous, basically. I think what we don't have enough evidence on is if they really help with obesity management, uh, weight gain in the long term, because mm. do they impact our appetite in a certain way? I don't think there's enough evidence there, but they're certainly deemed safe to use. They Because they're so, so sweet, they're in such small mm. quantities that we would never kind of go near the, the upper limit. So um, I don't think we should ignore that aspect at all. I think that we need to look, you know, measure and evaluate and research. But yeah. um, we do have evidence about sugar and at the moment, we just know that the sweetness is safe to use. Yeah. And Jenny, you, you referenced environment and what's banded around as this obesogenic environment. And there's a lot of ownership placed on parents. But in your opinion, how much of this is free choice, especially when, I mean, there's been these advertising campaigns at the moment, but this is how heavily influenced by big budgeted marketing. Is it really a free choice, in your opinion? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that is such a bugbear for me, this idea of free choice. Like we go into a supermarket and we either decide to pick something healthy for our family to eat and they eat it or we don't. Um, there are a million different things that obviously influence what we um, buy, the food that we buy and the food that we choose to feed our family. Um, and actually, I should I use that word choose lightly as well. We need to talk about it more in terms of food options um, rather than choice because it might be financial um, it might be time and convenience. It might be also the fact, this is interesting, that we make over 200 food-related decisions a day. So a lot of what we're eating, we out, we have to make so many decisions on everything that we outsource a lot of those things that are quite habitual and eating is quite habitual. So, um, But to go further than that, we respond to food cues. And that's why the environment is such a challenge at the moment. We're Essentially, we end up blaming ourselves or, or we're made to feel blamed for not resisting um, what we're not designed to resist because we need to eat to survive. And, you know, or we're going to respond to that. But specifically in terms of advertising, I mean, their whole job, their whole big budget is spent on persuading us to buy foods. And so even though I have I have had I did have a, a, a TV interview once where 
the other side where you have the, the other side of the argument and they were saying well you know it doesn't actually advertising doesn't influence food choice and it doesn't play a role and I thought that's I think you're doing yourself a disservice there because you're putting a lot of money and you guys are really good at getting us to eat what you had so congratulations but also you know it's, it's bad because then it comes down to we're going to make all the unhealthy stuff is disproportionately cheaper we're going to advertise it we're not advertising the healthier stuff and then we're going to make you feel bad for making a poor choice for your child which I think is unfair so the research around advertising is that it influences um, our, our taste preferences it also influences increases preference in general for the more salty sugary high fat foods and it also shows that it's gone as far as to say that it increases our food intake as well and we don't compensate for that um, at later meals throughout the day so there's lots of good evidence on, on advertising at the moment to feed into all the restriction campaigns so well I guess like the next level of that as well is that even if people are trying to make healthy choices a lot of things are advertised as being healthy or like I don't know the example I, that always comes to my mind is like these breast breakfast biscuits which are a healthy breakfast on the go and you think oh that's something I can do for my family it's really easy everyone can have that but really there's so much sugar in it not a lot of nutritional value in there but yet they're actively trying to make that good choice but it's still confusing because there's such mixed messages you're so right that's another big bugbear of mine actually if I'm honest (laughs) another one so because in terms of health claims and what you can say you can have something that's really high in sugar, really high in salt, really high in saturated fat, but it also could be a source of fiber. So you would literally, you wouldn't have to put a color-coded label on the front of the packet to kind of, that's red, 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 but you could splash across it that it's high in fiber and with big green ticks. And that's what's happening. And then parents are just utterly confused. So Mm. I think in terms of future regulation for health claims, that is something that we would want to see is you can only it would have to fit a certain a certain nutrient profile into like before you can actually put a health claim something else on it um yeah cereals are, are I think are a really good example of that actually mm. yeah and it is so confusing because you're putting these like healthy labels on or, or you'll say what it's high in like you're saying like oh it's it's a good source of protein but what else is in it or it's high in whole grains but yeah. x y and z yeah so it's but it is, yeah, I guess it must be really hard to manage what people are allowed to say about food and what they can call healthy and unhealthy or... Yeah, yeah. but then it's still the parents' fault for making a bad decision. Oh, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I mean, it, it, they should be registered nutritionists. And it, it's insane to me that, you, that they actually have aisles in the supermarket and the aisle is labelled healthy biscuits or healthy cereals mm. and it's like well, you've got muesli in that which has got a ton of sugar mm. a ton of calories and like a few raisins to make it kind of useful and nutritional and it just like it's how can you expect joe public to know you know yeah. to, to believe any different and this is i think what i find even more frustrating is about it is that there's no kind of there's no onus on these shops to to not use bad language like that yeah it's like well-known health stores you know like yogurt covered raisins or you know chocolate dipped banana chips that are you know well, skinny you know, detox teas all those yeah as well it's, it's, it's each end of the spectrum i know yeah. there's no regulation there needs to be but the best example i saw of those healthy aisles lately was i was doing a bit of an investigation it was for bbc radio 5 live and 
went to find vegan products to make this point that they're not, you know, being vegan, I'm going totally off piece by the way, but being vegan is not inherently healthier. Mm. It depends really totally on what you eat. I mean, it can be, but it, it might not be. And when I was looking for vegan products and, you know, the sausage rolls that are higher in salt actually than the meat version, they were all under a healthy choices section purely because they were vegan. I'm like, well, just don't give people any hope, do we? So they're, they're picking yeah. up all of these thinking, yeah, anyway, that's a whole different podcast. Because I like and I, I would hearkening back to, you know, the days when I used to unsuccessfully diet and it was all based around the fact that I would go to the shop and buy all of this horrific food. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're making all of these masses all taste. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing all of the hard work, but it's for nothing because did you're you actually... Misled? Did I what? Did you feel misled? Like, did you buy into it? misled. Yeah. I felt like I could go any unlimited quantities of all of this healthy halo-y food. Mm-hmm. And then I would be like, well, why aren't I losing weight? I'm suffering so much. Because yeah. all I'm eating is, you know, Rivita and cottage cheese. Yeah. And I'm wondering why I'm not losing weight because I'm basically living on bread and cheese still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of it, it. The thing with this as well is that we can educate, but education only goes so far. We only manage to access certain people with education, but yeah. also even, you know, I know, I know exactly what I should be eating. Does it mean I do it all the time? <laughs> no. So there's a lot more going on than just sort of knowing as well, I think, which is part of where it goes back to campaigns to change the, the food environment and help help us make a healthier choice. Yeah, and I think that's where we touched on before as well, is, you know, how do we articulate this message to the most socially deprived areas where people are more financially constrained than ever, they're more time poor than ever, and it's it's not necessarily a thought until it's, too late and they're you know there's they're already facing obesity related illnesses where do we even start and one of the hardest things i think must be that resistance to that change because you hear all these people say oh it's like a nanny state i want to eat nice cocoa pops not this new version of cocoa pops that taste Mm -hmm. different and then you think but what where were you when the nanny state was forcing you to eat loads of sugar because you didn't have any other alternative. Exactly. It's not like we've all had absolute freedom, you know, yeah. with what we've been eating. We eat what's on the shelves. So exactly. whatever way you look at Annie's Day, it's 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 all really to do with the food manufacturers. Yeah. Um, and what and what they put in with their food. And there's been no upper limits on the amount of sugar and yeah. or salt and stuff. So it, it needs some action. So yeah, I don't I don't agree with the the nanny state argument. In fact, you'd probably want the government to be a nanny. It's a duty of care of them to look yeah. after um, children's health as part of everything else that they do. Exactly. So, of course. Yeah. Do you ever? Sorry. Do you ever worry that that there there is too singular a focus? And how do you respond to that kind of in terms of? A lot of people say, well, why are we worrying so much about sugar? And that was that was my original criticism before I yeah. went to your lecture, in fact, was that, you know, what we're making everyone we're demonizing sugar in the same way that we've previously demonized fat. Is is that is that positive or negative? And, you know, I'm cheating here because I already know the answer because I went to Jenny's lecture. But actually, it'd be great. <laughs> it'd be great for our listeners to hear to hear the answer to that. Yeah, I, th- I think, do you know what? There's well, there's a few different answers, but. We have focus on other nutrients. Everyone, everyone said, you know, they're only focusing on sugar. And I'm like, no, the salt, the salt focus of the sister company to action on sugar has been going for years. So actually yeah. behind the game a little bit with sugar. Like you said, that has been focused on fat. I think what people complain about is that you focus on 
single nutrients and don't talk about food as a whole, which yeah. communicating healthy eating, you know, you know, public health messages, or I'm working with a group talking about nutrition, I'll always talk about foods. Mm. But what people sometimes forget is that food is made up of nutrients. It's not made up of air. It's made up of these nutrients. So if we want to shift, you know, change the nutritional profile of food, we have to break it down, certainly from a campaign aspect. Um, you have to talk about increasing more fiber. You have to talk about reducing more sugar. You have to talk about changing salt. So we can't really change food and reformulation, which I think is, you know, this health by stealth sort of changing the food at source gradually over time is the most impactful public health, one of them anyway, that we can do nutritionally because you don't have, people don't have to engage. People could carry on eating the same thing if they wanted to, but over time it's healthier um, and more nutritious. So yeah. And the other thing with sugar is that behind the scenes, it's not just sugar. It, it's, it's calories overall. Um, and yeah, just overall kind of nutrition in food, looking at it um, holistically, but it's less risky. A public health message about sugar is actually less risky. It's less complicated than salt. Mm -hmm. So part of it, if I'm honest, is you talk about sugar, but you get traction um, because we don't necessarily need sugar, like added sugars, free sugars um, in, in our diet, in the food sources to survive. Not saying that you shouldn't have it at all, by the way. There's lots of reasons that we do eat sugar and we should enjoy sugar. Um, but it's not a risky, complicated health message. You are, and we are having, you know, lots of it. So you are able to get more public traction for that. And you have to create that public appetite in order to get the government to listen and get political change. Now, the tricky thing with this is by doing that, the messages of the public to be careful about that. Um, but some of the criticisms of public health, you know, like sugar in the headlines, so sugar being high in cereals or sugar not being healthy for us. And people really don't like those messages. They'll say that you're demonizing foods and all sorts. Um, and I think that the criticism it personally is disproportionate to the impact, like the bigger game here, like the mm. bigger impact mm. that we're having. And nutrition is one part of it, but I feel like a lot of it is to do, do with politics as well. But I'm very, very mindful of the duty of care. Like, you know, we have to weigh up like, we don't want unintended consequences. Um, we need to be really careful about how we talk about food. I'm really passionate about that, particularly working directly with families. But um, are those messages harmful to the general public? Probably not. Do some people actually want to hear them as well? I'd go as far as to say, yeah. So, yeah, I think with some of these things I've come to learn. Um, I mean, this is a similar point. Going back to your question, Dan, about... So socially deprived groups and how do we get these messages about obesity and health across when people haven't got the means necessarily to easily make changes the the cancer research campaign obesity campaign um been thinking about a lot lately um and i'll explain it in a second but my overall just to link the, the both points together is that we don't we not one message is going to be perfect for everyone so some people might benefit from the message some people might like it some people might hate it we've all got different opinions as long as it's safe obviously that's the main thing but i don't know if you know the cancer research poster that i'm talking about. yeah is it the one that says obesity but with the the nub the yeah yeah that's right yeah but in a way i think it's worked very well that um that's been so controversial because you wouldn't have heard of it otherwise. Like the fact that some people really didn't like it has actually done a lot for the campaign. 
yeah yeah actually do you know what that is true maybe that's why they're refusing to change it <laughs> you just made the penny drop for me totally. <laughs> it's really it was a really interesting one because i would i was sort of involved in a in a um debate for they did like an advertising piece in a gp magazine and it was it was about kind of um whether gps are the people who should be focusing on trying to reduce obesity as part of the campaign against cancer and stuff and so just through that i was i was kind of acutely aware of what was going on with it and i i was kind of really fascinated by people's reaction to it because it was um yeah it it was it was emotional wasn't it like it really kind of it hit a nerve with people and i guess that's what those campaigns are supposed to do but i've never seen there be like a backlash against you know cancer research to me is kind of an untouchable charity you know everybody feels so passionately about cancer and raising money for cancer and so many people have had experiences with it and it's literally like this thing that you know you could never speak negatively about and suddenly we were in this situation where people were like no this is bad and I, it really shocked me you're right it definitely like what I find with a lot of nutrition stuff actually is that some stuff there's a lot more emotion led beliefs than science led beliefs um which isn't necessarily a bad thing it's inevitable like food and health and everything else with this one I've done so much thinking I've been I've talked to cancer research about it a lot as well actually um and I think that they have a duty of care to explain that message that link between obesity and cancer um and people should have that information at the end of the day it's factual i think it's not inherently stigmatizing by itself mm -hmm. but if we think about it in the context of our environment where people are not not you know not many people at all like the general public actually a lot of health professionals still are very much associating obesity with us just making awful choices and um bad li lazy lifestyles when when you try i think their intention of it is um, a bit challenging in the environment that we're in where mm -hmm. blame and obesity are associated. So yeah. that's the issue. I think that they could still have the impact, but slightly target an end message to politicians and say, you know, therefore this is what we want to do. And then it takes some of the blame and responsibility off, I think. But yeah, but my whole thing with this, I, I spoke to lots of different people and clinical psychologists and all sorts, and even I had different, you know, messages from them. Um, but some people will be offended by it. Some people won't. Some people like it. Some people hate it. It's not necessarily a right or wrong as long as it's safe, I think. I think it was a good message because I think a lot of people didn't know mm. that being obese increased your risk of certain cancers. Yeah. So in terms of just awareness, that was... Yeah. I agree. That's what they said. That's what cancer research said. Well, you know, people... I think the challenge then is what do people do with that awareness and we know that if people feel stuck like if people know that but they could think but I and then they feel blamed you know um uh, but they can't really they're struggling to do stuff about their weight because we know it's not that easy and so research doesn't support the idea that the fear motivates us to change as such mm -hmm. um so I think that's where a directed message elsewhere at the end like this is the the you know the action that we're all going to take together or you know politics are going to help us with um, would be helpful so people didn't feel just like okay now I know that but what do I do like mm -hmm. now I'm panicking um yeah so it's interesting I think mm. I think it's it, it's what you know what you said about it can be true for so many things that you, you know you can things the same message can offend people it can motivate people it can make people feel better it can make people feel worse 
Um, <clears throat> but it's really interesting in the context because people are so people feel so passionate about stopping doing kinds of activities that that can cause cancer, and they kind of I think sometimes it's super easy to miss the wood for the trees and, and realize that any kind of effective lifestyle change can have an impact on your health in such massive ways. Um, and then, then sometimes people take from it that you have to literally do everything and you, you know, you, there's no point in doing one small thing, but how do you kind of, um, I think it's just a good, a good segue into how, how, like we, I think kind of in nutrition world, in Instagram world, in the world, we are seeing a lot more focus on, um, <clears throat> you know, we, a few years ago, all the focus was on how to lose weight, how to get shredded, how to um, improve your lifestyle. And now we're seeing a bit of a tide turning in terms of, you know, real focuses on, on anti-diet culture, um, the, the toxicity of diet culture, which we know exists. We know there are, are many toxic aspects to diet culture. Um, and people talking more and more about the disempowering language and the stigmatizing language. How do you kind of balance that as, as someone who is who is campaigning for, you know, particularly childhood obesity? There's a lot of emotive language. There's a lot of emotions running high because you're not just dealing with the, the, the people who might be suffering from the problem. You're dealing with their family members, their parents who feel fiercely protective over them. How do you manage that kind of this this sort of new wave of almost, you know, we shouldn't talk about it because it might upset people? Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting. And honestly, um, it's on my mind far more than it should be. Um, I think about it all the time. I talk to real experts in it all the time, um, predominantly clinical psychologists and making sure we're working with also sociologists and communication teams. So everyone has a role to play together. I think something that I've learned is that when you work in teams, you know, big teams, everyone's got a really valid point to make. And the psychologist might have one or the nutrition might have, nutritionist might have one, but the communications person also has one. It's not just, you know, what I sit here in my nutrition world, you know, really black and white world. And this is what I think is the most helpful thing to communicate. Like everyone has an opinion and a really relevant opinion to make these campaigns work. Um, but we do, you know, that there's been a lot of insight in the last few years about framing ABC mm -hmm. and how we talk about it, because honestly, people are, are fed up of hearing that it's really frightening. Um, also, that's not necessarily a helpful message to land to the public. Um, when you have it landing on the laps of people who do have obesity. Um, we also, yeah, like reducing the combat kind of language against it, like it's a, a fight all the time or a battle. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. It's mm -hmm. just how we talk about it. And I think this is what I feel really strongly about because what can end up happening is we is we can, the, the science around the impact of obesity on health is then undermined. And I think we mustn't do that. So talking about even re reframing it, so we're, you know, saying how healthy weight um, is linked with X, Y, and Z, you know, in terms of health outcomes and quality of life and all the rest of it, I think could be healthier than sort of like this doom of obesity message all the time, which, you know, pe people know, um, and pe I think people are, are bored of it and we do need to be careful with the stigma there. So yeah, there is lots of work going on with clinical psychologists and framework companies. Um, yeah. So the, the step at the moment, I think is trying to integrate that into all of the, 
you know, a lot of the NGOs are on board. There's this whole big working group. So there's definitely loads of work being done. Um, but trying to then thread that and get that process. Um, and also the media, trying to get them to then, I mean, even they're part of some of these working groups as well, but trying to get them not to take a press release and, you know, use awful stigmatising images and headlines is... I to be honest, like I think that people are doing great work in this area, but that to me is not going to change overnight. It's a whole cultural shift. It's huge. Mm -hmm. So we do definitely need to be careful, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater or whatever that saying is and and try and downplay the impact of obesity on health. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, a broad area, especially when, you know, the likes of Instagram and the, the information people have access to. And it's something we bring up quite often on here and just wanted to touch on it in terms of scope of practice and something that's accessible to all because everyone's obviously got different different ways of getting their information. But what, in your opinion, harmless practical advice can health professionals, GP, fitness professionals within their scope of practice get out there that will benefit all? Because we all know there's there's certain woo out there that um and products to be sold but what harmless information that can fitness professionals and health professionals give mm. so that is such a big question <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's a really good question i think it's so so topical so breaking it down um in terms of fitness professionals and gps for example and they're they're really frontline people that general public will go to for nutrition information um registered nutritionists dietitians we're not seeing people on a day-to-day -day basis unless <laughs> potentially someone is in the nhs and severely like clinically ill and needs a dietitian or they're paying a fortune and going privately in which case they're not always the people who need the most support so i do think there's something to be said for um us upskilling other professionals to to have some to give some nutrition knowledge um, particularly when talking a lot about, you know, with GPs lately and GPs are frustrated because they're seeing that they've got the people coming through the door where they know that nutrition would, um, positively impact. Um, there are all sorts of challenges with that though, because I know, well, Mike, you'll be able to talk more about this, but the time being able to diagnose that in the time frame, um, actually trying to establish some kind of behavior change, all the rest of it. I mean, there's whole lots of challenges there in itself. But there'll be some GPs that will be aware of it and frustrated that they don't learn enough nutrition. There'll be some GPs that miss the link altogether. Um, neither is appropriate. So definitely something needs to be done there. Um, there just needs to be, you know, with any profession, like not know, like knowing what you don't know. And I think that's what can be, can be missing amongst all professions, actually. Sure. Um, so there's a scope of practice bit to be had here. And Association for Nutrition, so I worked with them a few years ago on a scope of practice for fitness professionals um, and personal trainers and what they should and shouldn't um, talk about in terms of nutrition. And some of the conclusion there is actually public-facing information, like the Eat Well Guide. Um, you know, that's publicly available. Anyone can pick that up. If we can help people, um, you know, train people to almost talk about that, instead of them not having anything and then talking about all sorts then actually that can be a good thing but also let's not try and treat IBS um and you know with GPs I think similarly as well AFN are looking at now working with a working group of GPs and registered nutritionists and dietitians to really scope out okay if it's going to be embedded into med medical school then 
um, you know, what is the scope of practice? And, and that's, that is the key thing. I think we need to do something and we need to talk about it because otherwise it's just going to be done anyway, but really badly. Um, but also, you know, the, the ideal is that there are more nutrition professionals to refer on to um, mm. Mm. because doctors don't need to just be dealing with eat less or they need to be dealing with cancer diagnosis and all sorts of really scary, serious things. So let's also not get kind of um, sidelined with, nutrition when there are more serious things um at, at stake but so i don't think the balance has quite been established but i think that it's been spoken about and that's a really positive thing yeah i, I totally agree with that and, and i think that the, the issue is i mean you're you're spot on with what the issues are for for doctors in that you know some of us don't know very much about nutrition um and then when we do or if we do or if we think we do we don't really have time to talk about it. And you kind of have this 10 minute consultation and you're kind of shoehorning into 30 seconds at the end. I think the difficulty is we have such an unprecedented level of access to the public and we have an unprecedented level of trust from the public as well. And it's important that we use that positively. And I think the difficulty is, like you say, we don't have easy access to nutritionists, but we are getting more and more like well-being services and stuff like that, which, you know, um, I am getting pretty good reports about I need to go and spend some time with, with our local one. Actually, I had a chat to them recently and, and you know, I, I kind of am I'm starting to send patients to them. And I think that it sounds like such a positive thing and I want to know more about what they do. Um, but it, it is it's kind of it's almost like I want the 30 seconds that I do talk about nutrition to people to be like a golden 30 seconds of awesome information. Not me going, oh, well, you know, have you tried cutting out dairy? Or something like completely useless, you know, and I think that's that's the problem. And and I, and I I hold my hands up that in you know several years ago before I I went through this whole process, I went paleo and I found really amazing results from it. And when patients would ask, you didn't admit that on Instagram, did you? I did at the time, and I've admitted it since that that I said to patients, I was like, well, I've tried paleo, it's great, you know. And now I just think back and I'm like, oh, I can't believe that I did that. And it's kind of like having that experience myself has taught me how possible it is to believe stuff that, you know, to be biased in your, in your beliefs and, and how important it is not to use your beliefs in your professional practice. Mm, yeah. Well, that's another Instagram issue for me. There's, um, you know, we're kind of trained if you're going to give a nutrition workshop that you never stand at the front and say, well, I do this. So if everyone just goes home and do this, right, you know, bye. Um, actually, lots of, first of all, you're putting your own um, experience on a pedestal, whether it's the best or not, because yeah. you're the nutrition professional. Second of all, um, you're, you um, may be saying something that isn't possible for someone and then they feel completely helpless. I think on Instagram, for example, we are at risk of saying, look what I do all the time. Um, and actually, you know, some people might like it. I just wonder if it's, the most helpful um approach but yeah like what you were doing Mike was just obviously coming from a place of you know I really care and I want to help this patient mm. and I think that's what's a shame if we shut down conversations about doctors and nutritionists and stay in my lane and all the rest of it because you you want to do it doctors are going to do it anyway from a good place but really miss informed um mm -hmm. because there is generally this is a frustration with nutrition and you know you will all say the same things about your professions i'm sure but it's frustrating that sometimes i think nutrition is really oversimplified and people just have no idea of the complexities and the nuances and well no you know even registered nutritionists and dietitians you would learn it all through experience but 
so you know to have some kind of training I think is the best thing I agree and I think that the the other the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize when it comes to stuff like GPs and this is difficult to articulate to people people who are in different professions is that sometimes we don't have the luxury of having a lane and staying in it because sometimes we're the only professional that those people have access to because they don't have the money to go and hire a private nutritionist or a personal trainer or um, you know they might need to wait several months to get to see a dietitian if they even can see a dietitian if they, if they even qualify for a referral so you know there are some situations where we are kind of left in a situation where we have to try and do our best to deal with something that we might not have had specific training in with the caveat that we're supposed to be trained in first principles and we're supposed to understand physiology and stuff but you know a lot of the times there are things that happened a very long time ago at medical school and thinking has changed and you know we we have to be aware of our lane even if we can't always stay in it and and I think that's the thing and try and make the lane as big as possible yeah that's so good that's an Instagram post for you tomorrow morning Make Amazing. the lane. It's Transformation Tuesday tomorrow. I'll be too busy. Sorry. Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday. But you know, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think that that is also a really key message that needs to go out there. Like, lovely idea that, you know, we'll have nutritionists and that, you know, in every practice and all the rest of it, not happening anytime soon. Mm, exactly. Yeah. That's actually, that's that's probably a really good place that you've kind of given up a lot of your time, Jenny, to uh, round it up. So be aware of your lane, but make sure it's as big as possible. Brilliant. Is that right? I like that. That's right. I like that. One thing I just wanted to touch on is that um, you said that people tend to oversimplify nutrition, which I think is absolutely true. But at the same time, someone like a personal trainer who isn't qualified in nutrition, but who is going to be asked frequently for nutrition advice, would you agree that they should be giving out quite a simple message, given that they don't have the expertise to delve into anything more... Yeah, well, do you know, I'd feel really comfortable if uh, a personal trainer, there was one way back in the day, um, I'd feel more comfortable, actually, if they, you know, rather than not having sort of any boundaries and giving lots of stuff, actually learning a bit more about it as part of the course and um, being able to give something, like I said, that is really the evidence-based guidelines, it's public health information, so it would never be that individualised, I'm going to go off piece because actually this is really specific to you, like, that needs to be a referral, um, even though we know that referral aspect is, is a challenge. But if it's a health thing, they're going to their doctor anyway. But for you, it's probably more general sort of health, healthy eating information. Um, but yeah, so I think, again, going back to that, there is that framework with the AFN. And that was just an acknowledgement that, yeah, people are going to be asking you. We can either be, you know, really overly protective about our profession or we can think about how can we get more people thinking in the most positive, helpful way about nutrition. And like, for me, that is giving something versus nothing. Because yeah. if you give nothing, you're just giving free reign. And, mm-hmm. and and at that point, the non-nutrition professionals can say more than the nutritionists. And I think that's the biggest risk, really. Yeah, and I think you sort of touched on something earlier about people, I guess, not knowing how little they know. Or, like, the more you sort of get to know, the more you realise, oh, actually, I need to refer out here because I understand that there's more complicated issues that I don't know about. Whereas a lot of people with a big platform are at this sort of lower level of not knowing that much but not realising that they don't know that much. And that's quite a dangerous place to be. Yeah, that is. That is. And especially, like, you know, 
I always think with nutrition professionals on Instagram, again, say I talk about nutrition professionals, but same with lots of different professions. If you are just really having a career, however successful it is online, just get offline and work with the experts. Like I, I go on about that all the time. Like, and I say the experts, I just mean people who are experienced and, and just, you know, expose yourself to lots of different professionals and especially in the work that we all do, you know, it, it's always multidisciplinary. Like I'm, I'm probably kind of like knocking on the doors of clinical psychologists um, for their advice on, on different aspects as much as other nutrition professionals. So yeah, not knowing, like not knowing, you don't know what you don't know, I think is a, a challenge, but if we're aware of that, then that's helpful. <laughs> exactly. Can I just throw in one little quote that I really like from, um, from Zoe Williams, who's an awesome GP who does a lot of work. Um, well, as she does a lot of work full stop, but she does stuff with, um, with public health England and NHS England. She does stuff on this morning. She's a GP. She's awesome. Anyway, I remember she used to work with men. That's how I know Zoe. Oh, did she? I did not know that. Yeah. And she used to be a gladiator as well. Even more. Important. Um, exactly. But she always said this thing that I really love. And it's basically like there is enough stuff that we all agree about that we don't have to focus so much on the minutiae of like of, you know, whether we think low carb is better or, or keto is better or paleo is better or anything like that. There's so much that we do agree on in terms of healthy lifestyle and in terms of how we can improve things, you know, drinking more water, eating more fiber, getting, you know, more fruit and vegetables and, and you know, minimally processed whole foods and all of that kind of stuff. And that's the thing that we don't you know, if we got more of that information out there and just got people to focus on those things rather than just having arguments about whether fasted cardio is, is useful or not online, then we'd be winning. Exactly. Yeah. Totally agree. She said something similar to me just recently. Um, yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Excellent. So be aware of what you don't know, be aware of your lane and make sure that's as large as possible. <laughs> In summary. In summary, in summary, no, that that was that was absolutely fantastic. Lots of things I didn't know in there, but um, yeah, thanks, Jenny. And that's probably a good place to round off. So, thank you so much for your time, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank yeah. you. Ho hopefully, you enjoyed some of that, and you obviously got an insight into what a highly professional unit we are as well. Technology <laughs> able, you all are uh, in the garage band. Some of us, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, to, to our listeners, if you did like that, please subscribe, like, and all that jazz. Also, you can follow Jenny if people want to follow you on social media. Where can they find you? Hello, healthy you. Don't judge that name; just haven't changed it. That's me on Instagram and Twitter. Okay. And website? Do you, you have a website? Oh well, yeah, I do, but it's not live because two years ago I was meant to finish it and I haven't. Oh my god, Jenny! I heard this on your podcast that I listened to today. You saying that your dad told you just to get stuff done and that you were going to get stuff done, and you've still not got stuff done. You know what? I don't get stuff done. Like that is the biggest thing. I get nothing done, hardly. Um, but yeah, no, that now it's really just half done. But yeah, watch the space. Revisit, revisit in six months' times at least. Cool, excellent. So thanks, Mike and Emma, too. Should we just do it in the usual fashion? Yeah, yeah bye. Yeah, say, okay, bye. Bye.